Well, good morning, Christ Central. How are you? How's everybody doing this morning? Good. All right. Live. We got there. Anderson's in the back. Good. Glad all of you are uh, with us that you've decided to join us this Sunday morning. Uh, we're finishing up our series that we've been in in the past five five weeks on being the church. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to last until the beginning of Advent season, which is November 28th. Uh, we're going to finish up today and then for a number of weeks spend time in the Old Testament book of Kings where we're going to study the life of one of Israel's great prophets, Elijah. My guess is that uh, many of you have not done an in-depth dive into the life of Elijah. Uh, We've never preached on Elijah here at Christ Central. I'm excited uh, to jump into Kings together. Our hope and and prayer is that it'll help all of us read and understand the Old Testament even better than we do and that God really will use it to draw us near to himself, uh, to abide in him, and then he'll lead us to how to live out the Christian life in our current time. Uh, and so I hope you'll join us for that series. But we're finishing up this series on being the church. This morning we've been looking at five, uh, we've looked at five different, we've looked at four, we're looking at the fifth this morning, different metaphors that the Bible uses to describe God's church, his intention for his church. And thankfully, uh, we don't create the church in our own imagination, but rather Scripture directs us to what God's church is to be. And Scripture gives many images uh, that help us understand God's heart and God's design for His church. We've just looked at a few of them in this series. We've looked at the family, the body, the temple, salt and light. And this morning, you know, we're going to be looking at perhaps the most prominent metaphor, the church as the bride. Now, I realize that as I say the bride, a number of you might immediately feel some difficulty with that metaphor. This image might stir up emotions in all of our hearts for a variety of reasons. Uh, Some of you might be single, and you've longed to be married for some time, and you're still waiting. So being the bride makes you feel that longing to be married even more. Some of you have been divorced, and there's a good amount of pain when you think about your former marriage. And so being the bride could stir up some hurt. Some of you are currently in difficult marriages. And you've been hoping for your marriage to to change for some time. And it's not happening as fast as you would like. So being the bride sounds burdensome. Maybe like hard work. And some of you men could be thinking, I'm not a bride. I am or I want to be a bridegroom. It's hard to imagine uh, as a man being the bride. And so let me just say to you men, God is very clear with this metaphor. And it has tremendous theological implications. And so my encouragement is to stick with it. And also the the women among us often hear scriptures like Galatians 4 verse 5, where Paul writes, God redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons. The women among us are not sons, but there is theological reasoning for why Paul uses sonship that if done away with, loses its potency. And so it is with this metaphor, the bride. Lastly, you could be internally wrestling with this metaphor because it connotes deep, vulnerable, intimate love. And maybe you've never thought about God or related to God as a lover. And it can feel quite scary to do so. But it's a glorious image, the church as the bride. And so we're going to turn and we're going to read a passage that I use in Every wedding that I officiate as the call to worship in the wedding ceremony, it's a a beautiful passage in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. 
This is God's word to us this morning. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Well, God, I pray that you would draw us by your spirit, through your word, into an intimate encounter with a God who is steadfast in his love towards us. May our defenses be broken down. May our resistance to your love be broken through so that we, by your grace, may understand just how much you love us, how much you delight in us. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. In 1991, the book Redeeming Love was published by author Francine Rivers. Uh, some of you who know the book, you're kind of chuckling. I see some chuckles through your masks already. Uh, but this book sold over 3 million copies. It's being turned into a movie adaptation to be released in 2022. And I have to confess that after much resistance, this was 1991, those were my high school years and into college, uh, I, I had a, a lot of resistance to this book. I didn't want to read the book. But after resisting, I finally read it post-college, and I often have to confess that I kind of liked it. Uh, it's a story about a husband, Michael Hosea, who feels called to marry a woman named Angel, who is a prostitute. And Michael pursues her relentlessly, and she finally gives in and says, okay, fine, I'll marry you. And even after their marriage, Angel remains resistant to, to Michael's determined love towards her, and their marriage is, is very turbulent. She returns to her sexually promiscuous lifestyle, and then she'll come back to Michael. She'll wander away again, and she'll come back, and Michael, all the while, remains the faithful husband, pursuing her, taking her back over and over and over, and it is his redeeming love towards her that slowly transforms her heart. And as some of you probably know, or maybe can, can connect the dots with the, the name Michael Hosea, the book is loosely uh, comes out of and based on the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you've read the Old Testament book of Hosea, you know it's, it's the whole book is on this metaphor of God as husband and his people, the church, as his bride. But it's not just the Old Testament book of Hosea, but it's, it's really the whole Bible that tells the story of love. In the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible, God has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So just listen briefly to this recap. God created, Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman in his image to know and to love God with a special covenantal relationship. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They are unfaithful. 
It breaks their relationship to God, but God remains faithful and determined. He makes another covenant with his people in Genesis 15 and 17. He does this with Abraham. And God promises and he makes vows to Abraham to be Abraham's God and the family of Abraham's God. And then much of the Old Testament is about the unfaithfulness of God's people. They disobey God. They worship false gods. And the Bible uses the language of adultery when talking about Israel's sin. Their idolatry and worship of things other than God is giving themselves over to other lovers. The Old Testament is a story of a turbulent marriage. And and Israel continues to be unfaithful, and God finally gives them over to their desires, and God is silent for 400 years from the time of Malachi until Jesus. And at that point, God is no longer silent, as our passage says in verse 1. But God shows up. And Jesus, the word made flesh, speaks and acts in love towards his people. And even then, the world resists such love. And the bride kills the husband. Jesus crucified on a cross. And then it is through the death of Jesus that we are redeemed from our unfaithfulness and adultery. The love of Christ is the redeeming love. And currently, we are separated from the bridegroom, Jesus. But the Spirit of Christ unites us to Jesus, and the Spirit of Christ is drawing people to become part of the bride, and the Spirit of Christ is beautifying and purifying us, the bride, and preparing us for what will be the consummation of the world, a wedding party. Revelation 19 tells us that when Jesus returns, he is returning as a bridegroom to be united eternally with his bride, the church, and we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, you and I were made to be married. We were created to be celebrated and loved for all eternity with a determined, faithful love that comes from God. Look at how our passage starts in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, for for the people of the city where the people of God dwell, for their sake, I will not be quiet. There is nothing Nothing that can stop God from pursuing us with his love. He is determined and unrelenting. Now, I know it may be a little bit overkill by now, but when the movie The Notebook came out and everybody saw Ryan Gosling play Noah and that now somewhat famous scene of Noah declaring his love to Allie while they argue by the car and She's resisting, right? She's resisting his love, and he he makes the declaration, I want you, and I want all of you, right? You and me every day. And everybody, even some of you tough guys in here, were like, yes, yes, that's right. Come on, Noah, because it taps into our spiritual DNA. It's what we all were created for to be loved with a relentlessness, a a determined pursuit. And as good as many earthly love stories that we might read or hear of, there is only one person who can love us perfectly and thoroughly. It's the one our souls were created for, God. And so what I want to do with our passage is highlight two loving actions of our faithful husband toward us, his bride, and then discuss two implications or applications for us as the bride. So let's look first at two loving actions. The first is naming, naming. In marriage, there's often a changing of names. The wife might take the last name of the husband. The husband and wife might hyphen and combine their last names. 
But that's not what I want to highlight with our passage. I want to highlight the power to shape through naming. Isaiah, look at our passage, verse 2 says, You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed, called, named, forsaken. You shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in you. Naming has the power to form and shape a person. All of us grew up being named good and bad things. But it's the ones that are hurtful and damaging that tend to really stick with us for the long haul. And, and maybe that naming came through parents. Maybe it came through friends. Maybe it came through your own internal voice of shame. And this is why when someone encourages you about what's true, good, or beautiful about you, it makes a deep impact. Right? If you grew up hearing you are ugly and someone names you or calls you beautiful, there is a power that chisels away at, the, at that old name and invites you to live into the new name. Now catch this, the more intimate and knowledgeable a person is of you, the more powerful that naming can be. Right? If one of you were to come up to me at some point and go, Daniel, you're a good man. It does have power to, sh to shape and form me, but I could and often do resist that. Any encouragement, I'll resist it. No, they don't really know me. If they really knew me, would they say that to me? But if my wife, Rachel, looks me in the eyes and says, Daniel, you're a good man. has profound power because she really does know me. She knows when I'm not good in my words and in my actions. She, she sees how I treat our children, how I respond to drivers on the road, and how, how I respond to stress at work. So when she names me, it has incredible power to chisel away at defining myself by the old names I'm used to living by, and it invites me into living by the new name. As the bride of Christ, God says, you have a new name. Church, you're no longer desolate. I love you. Therefore, your name is my delight is in you. No more termed forsaken. I love you. Your name is beautiful. You're treasured. So hear me, no matter what other people have said about you or what people might say about you, no matter what your internal voice of shame says about you, God calls you a new name and that is what you are. You are one in whom God delights. God looks you in the eye with full knowledge of your past, present, and future, full awareness of your heart, and God says, my delight is in you. Naming. The first loving action. The second loving action is rejoicing. Now, I love officiating weddings. One, because they're just, they're fun. <laughs> they're, they're just some of the best parties. I mean, when is there another time in, in your life when all your closest friends and family come together to celebrate you? I mean, our wedding, I, we look, Rachel and I look back on it all the time and say, it's the best party we'll ever go to. I mean, when's there another time like a rehearsal dinner when your closest people speak their favorite things over you? To be rejoiced over so publicly with so many people, sadly, is a rare experience. Another thing I love about officiating weddings is that I have the best seat in the house during the ceremony. When the doors swing open and the bride appears, I get to stand right next to the bridegroom. And I get to see and feel his experience of his bride. Two, two weeks ago, I officiated a wedding of a former member of our church in Chapel Hill and when the bride appeared, 
The bridegroom's face turned red. And he tried to hold it in. He's turning red. And then all of a sudden, down his face rolled big alligator tears. And he was taken at the appearance of his bride. And his bride beamed with joy because of the way he looked at her. And then tears started rolling down her face. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now make sure you get this image straight. It is not that we ought to look at Christ as a groom longingly looks at his coming bride. We are the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And Jesus is not down the aisle with arms folded and foot tapping, ready to get this show on the road. His face is beat red and tears are streaming down his face because he's so enamored with us as his redeemed lovers. As a young man rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now here's the major problem. Many of us have maybe even heard this analogy before. Perhaps it's your first time to hear it. But if we're honest, we are resistant to this type of love. I know I am. We can put up all kind of defenses, all kind of walls start going up in your hearts right now as I'm talking about this just piercing, steadfast love of God that comes to us. We, we want to protect ourselves because we want to say, deep down, if we're honest, we're telling ourselves we're not worthy of, type, of this type of love or God really can't love me. There's this unbelief that goes on within our hearts that God would love us like this. So we, we resist. There's a story in the New York Times Magazine about a little boy who was adopted from Russia. And this little boy would fly into terrible rages. He had fetal alcohol syndrome. And when he went into his rages, he was incontrollable. And so the family who adopted him found a program in in which the adopted boy would get paired with a therapy dog. And he got paired with a golden retriever, which, in my opinion, are the best dogs. Uh, We have a golden retriever. They're amazing. Well, uh, his, his golden retriever was named Granger. And when this child would fly into a rage, the dog would leap into action and pounce on the child and start smothering him with affection licking him and kissing him until the child would settle down. And ultimately, the the child would sink completely in to the affection this dog was showing him. And within one month, the child was sleeping through the night. His academic performance began to soar, and his life was set on a new trajectory. And for a myriad of reasons that could be in all of our hearts this morning, we are resistant to being loved so intimately by God. We put up our defenses, we tell ourselves we're not lovable, that we're unworthy of being loved. And what Isaiah is declaring to us is that God does not turn away when he hits our walls of defense. God is determined and he is consistent in his pursuit of us. And he longingly awaits for us to let him through so that we can settle down into the reality that he truly rejoices over us. And that we allow his love to set a new trajectory for our lives. But I want to close by looking at two implications, two applications of being the bride. The first is that being the bride cultivates intimacy with God. To be the bride of Christ is to experience and to know God as our deepest affection. To be in relationship with God does not mean we check off boxes. Read the Bible, check. Went to church on Sunday, check. It means that our bridegroom has our whole heart. 
Think about a marriage. If a, if a spouse says, I'm your wife, but then goes and spends a lot of time with another man, they just they go for long walks, they talk, they laugh, they eat meals together, the husband's going to get jealous. Uh, though the wife could say, well, we didn't have any physical connection, we've just spent time together, the, the husband's going to feel like her heart was going toward another man. Sin in relationship to God, it's way more than just breaking the law of God. It is most profoundly about breaking the trust and the heart of our bridegroom. So when we spend most of our time and our affection on our work or on politics or on making more money or on romance, this is what the Bible calls spiritual adultery. If we are addicted worried or afraid, something else has our heart. But hear the good news of what God is declaring through this metaphor, is that when we stray, and we do, we can return. That's what repentance is. It's returning over and over and over again because we have a faithful husband who always stays and who never leaves. And it's this type of love that compels us to want to spend time with God. Brad Wilcox is a sociologist at the University of Virginia, researcher on marriage and family issues, and found that spouses who spend time alone with each other, talking or sharing an activity at least once per week, were 3.5 times more likely to be very happy in their marriages than spouses who did so less frequently. So take that and think about that in relationship to God. Maybe you feel like your marriage to God is is hard right now. Maybe you feel like it's stale or boring. You feel distant from God. Showing up again and again and again, being faithful to God will help us cultivate the intimacy and connection. We return again and again. We show up and we spend time with God in his word, in prayer, in solitude, in worship on Sunday mornings, and he has promised he's always there to pour out his love towards us cultivates intimacy. The second thing being the bride does is that it cultivates community. Right? No one person alone is the bride. We are the bride. The church is the bride. The church is the one in whom God delights in and rejoices over. So can you imagine a church, a congregation filled with people who believes what matters most is not what other people say about us, or not even what the inner voice says about us, but that God declares us to be his beloved. It would be filled with men and women, young and old, who are helping each other remember. You are the beloved of God. We would remind each other over and over. Verse 3, you are a crown of beauty, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. You are a treasured possession. God delights in you would also encourage us as a congregation, as a church, to not just see the ugly and the brokenness in other people, but to see the belovedness that every person has. It would lead us to delight in one another, embrace one another, speak well of one another, not because of similar backgrounds or interests, but because we're the community of the beloved. Revelation 19 tells us that the way the world will end is with a wedding party. The best wedding party the world has ever seen. Verse 7, Revelation 19 says, Let us re rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Christ and church wed eternally. The faithful bridegroom will defeat death and destroy evil, bringing heaven to earth. And the bride, the church, will be presented radiant and beautiful in righteousness and salvation. And we will feast and dance and celebrate. And who is invited? All are invited. Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. Come to me, whoever wishes to come. Come, Jesus welcomes. So this means for us as a community of of believers, as the bride, that that we go around Christ Central and we invite people to come and to experience being part of the community. We invite our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates to come and to experience the party, to come and be united by faith to a Savior who takes great delight in loving us. For the many reasons that this metaphor of the bride could cause you to be resistant, And I will say, it's scary for me to think about God loving so intimately for my own story, right? I have my own story. You have your story, your reasons for your defenses and your walls. But my prayer is that the determined, pursuing, never stopping love of God will break through all your resistance. And that you would experience his great delight over you. We sang one of my favorite hymns earlier, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I love one of the last verses, and it's really what my sermon is all about. Is all about. And it, we sang earlier, the bride, the church, eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would bust through, break through any resistant walls we erect that would lead us to believe we're not lovable, that we're unworthy, that would lead us to think that you aren't a God like this. God, I pray that we would be drawn into the intimate love of of Christ, the love that willingly gave his life away for us so that we might be redeemed. I pray that we would know you this way and that you would cultivate intimacy in our relationships with you. Would you cultivate Christ Central to be a community that reminds one another of our belovedness, that sees the the beauty in one another, and that we invite our city in to experience the delight that you have over your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.